But if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we continue our study? We're in chapter 2 of the book of Nehemiah. I want to begin our reading in verse 17. As we studied last week, Nehemiah began talking about how that uh, he had not yet said anything to the officials, to the priests, the nobles, um, of the people, he said, who would actually be doing the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And verse 17 is when he kind of reveals to them his plan of action. He says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us start rebuilding and so they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or any historic right to it. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we analyze this passage today that your Holy Spirit would not only help us to parse it out in a way that makes sense, but also to apply it to our lives in a way that could make a difference. Lord, we do not want to be people who simply just become filled with information. We want to be people who are transformed by your truth. So bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You may recall that for, four, for 80 years the Jews had lived within the broken and ruined city of Jerusalem, that they had come back some 80 years earlier, had eventually rebuilt the, tw the temple after about 20 years, but then the rest of the time they lived in a city that was literally described as ruined, burned out. In fact, Nehemiah by his own admission said back in chapter 1 that the people were in great trouble and disgrace. Here again he uses the term as he's speaking to the leaders. They were in a place of disgrace. You know, disgrace means the absence of grace. In other words, from their perspective, when they looked on their life, they didn't see the hand of God's grace. They didn't see God's blessing. They saw basically destruction and judgment and cursing upon this ancient city. Literally, one translator said, we're full of affliction and shame, which may be a more pedestrian way to put it. Affliction means there's all sorts of things, troubling things happening to you. Shame is the feeling of humiliation and grief over being in the, in the position that you're in. Sadly, over these 60-odd years that they had, something had changed in them, that they came back from Babylon with great enthusiasm, and yet somehow that enthusiasm got lost. And we find that there are people who had become really accustomed, they'd become adjusted, they had become adapted to living in a life of pain, poverty, disgrace, and shame. You know, it's kind of like people who live with chronic pain. 
One thing I, I have experienced a few times that I've had, you know, things that caused me long-running pain in my life is that they give you medications and they say this will help you with your pain. Now, they don't explain necessarily how it helps you. What I discovered is it doesn't make the pain go away. It just makes you stop thinking about it. But the pain actually is kind of something that you adapt to. You, you kind of, there's some kind of a numbness. It's almost like the nerves get so overstimulated that they no longer respond so painfully and you just kind of learn how to live with the discomfort. And that can happen not only in a physical way, but it can happen to us emotionally and even spiritually. You see, these people had enough faith to, to endure what they were going through, but they had lost hope that the situation would ever change or improve. And I wonder how many of us are kind of living in that way. We basically resign ourselves to the way things are. We start calling abnormality normal. We call abnormality normal. In other words, we can become so accustomed to living in an abnormal and dysfunctional reality that we come to believe that that is what is normal. And our hope for anything better than that just simply gets buried under what we call the reality of living in the real world. Now, I'm not suggesting, as some do, that if you have enough faith that your life will always be prosperous and free of pain. Uh, the scriptures tell us too many places that the opposite is true. I mean, it was Job who said, man is few of days and full of trouble. I mean, you live long enough, you're going to find that you live in a broken, fallen, sinful world. You know, you have tires on your car, they don't get better as time goes on, they wear out. You have knees like people like me and you jog, you find that your knees don't get stronger. They begin to hurt in ways that you never imagined. So that's just the reality. You're just kind of, everything about us is wearing out, not only physically and materially, but also there's an emotional toll that takes place in our lives as well. And that's why Jesus said in John 16, 33, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. I mean, it's guaranteed. If Jesus said it, that's pretty much a guarantee. You're going to have trouble. But Jesus also added this. He said, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And I think the question we need to begin asking ourselves is, am I settling for less than God's best for me? Am I settling for something's less than what God really has for me in my life? You see, not all hardships are meant to be permanent. Christian psychologist uh, John Townsend, in his book, Hiding from Love, makes this interesting statement. He says, God has designed the universe so that we can identify problems based on their effect on our lives. In other words, we don't take notice of things that are out of order or broken in our lives until they come screaming to the surface and demand attention. They're, but they're symptomatic of something deeper. And he says, symptoms can be our friends. And then he adds, they're doing the job that God intended for them, which is to tap us on the shoulder and say, there's a problem, it's time to take a look at it. There's a problem and there's time to take a look at it. 
Well, this was the case with the Jews in Nehemiah's day. I mean, God, 600 years earlier, had prophesied through Daniel, long before the city was ever destroyed, basically said, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. In fact, he literally tells exactly when the city would be built, gives the exact number of years that would transpire before it was to be rebuilt. And again, on the eve of the city's destruction, we find Jeremiah twice telling the people in Jerusalem, the city will be rebuilt on her ruins, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt. So here's God's promise. This city is going to be rebuilt. Here they are living in ruins and rubble. But because of a series of very discouraging events, they lost courage. They resigned themselves to what appeared to be the reality on the ground. Rather than removing the rubble, they worked around it. Rather than rebuilding the ruins, they simply lived in them. Rather than seeing themselves as a people of grace, they accepted their life as people of disgrace. And I think it's possible that you're doing the same thing because I found myself at times doing the same thing. You see, Reinhold Niebuhr, whose serenity prayer now has become famous because the, the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous unit use it, but he wrote this following World War II, and he said this, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, to the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. In other words, what Niebuhr was saying is there are things in your life that are just going to be that way. You can't change them. You can't make yourself taller. You can't make yourself stronger than certain limitations. I mean, there are all sorts of physical material limitations that we're going to face in our life. And we need to accept that. When I can't be changed, we need to accept that as a reality. But there are some things that we can change, and what we lack many times is the wisdom to know the difference. That wisdom comes through prayer, seeking God, but to simply assume when something is painful or shameful in your life that that's just God's will may be a serious mistake. It may fall into that category James warned about when he said, if you ask not, you have not, you have not, because you ask not. In other words, there are some things, and this is way above my pay grade to understand, but there are some things in our life that God really is wanting to change, but He's waiting for you to ask Him to address those things in your life. Now, I have to give fair warning. There are things that I've asked God to change, and when I realize in retrospect what that change would require, I would never have prayed that prayer in the first place. You know, well, Job put it, he said, the end of the matter is, beginning of the, is better than the beginning, right? <laughs> so when you get to the end of it, you go, okay, God, I get it, I see what you're doing, but man, that journey was a lot harder than I had anticipated. But are you accepting the things that God wants you to change? A bad marriage, financial chaos, ruin, defeat, broken relationships, Broken health, broken heart, broken families, broken hope? Are these things that God says, well, this is the way I want to be? In other words, God's will for you is that you marry and be miserably ever after. Is that God's will for your life? If you really believe that, you probably already walked away from that relationship instead of fighting for it. 
If you have a relationship with somebody that's in conflict, do you believe that it's valuable enough to fight for because that's what God wants? Or have you developed that pattern of saying, when relationships get messy, I get moving, and that's the end of the story? Because I think that more and more is how people function today. But you have to wonder, is that God's best for you? Or is it time to follow Paul's injunction about taking a stand? Remember that in Ephesians 6 when he talked about the spiritual warfare that we're involved? And he says this in verse 11, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Stand against the devil's schemes so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. Do you notice that there's a word keeps on getting repeated the word stand, and that word literally means be ready, be prepared, and be immovable. The Roman soldiers wore, a, a, they called it a boot, it was more like a shoe sandal that had steel uh, spikes, nails literally underneath it, so that when they went into battle, they could lock their feet into the soil and hold up their shield and move forward so they were always holding their ground. They'd first take this wave of attack of the enemy. who would come screaming down on you know, throw their bodies up against their, their swords. And, and then they would just hold that advance, and then they would start moving forward just little by little by little. And it would only take them 20, 30 yards, and the enemy would break. But the whole thing was hold your ground. Don't give that up. It's a concept that a lot of people don't understand. My friend Ronnie Simon was one time, took us up to the top of what's called Mount Bental, and it's overlooking Syria. And, um, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a fortified uh, bunker on the top of this hill. And he told me one time, he said, my job, he's a lieutenant colonel, he's a commander of a battalion. He says, if there's out war with Syria or with Lebanon, my job is to gather all of my men on top of this hill and hold it at all costs for 48 hours. For 48 hours, if we're still alive, then that's great, but that's our job. We are to hold the advance of the enemy for 48 hours, even if it takes our own life. That's that concept of saying, I'm going to hold my ground. I'm committed to keeping this thing. And I think that we need to understand that retreat is not... Uh, really the role that God has for us, where we run away from difficult things in our lives. And please, I, I don't want to sound too preachy here. I get it. You know, I get it. The idea of running away from unpleasant things is, and difficult things is wonderfully attractive to me at times. I just don't get much permission to do that. But I would ask you, is it time for you right now in your life to do what Nehemiah did? David Augsburg talked about caring enough to confront. Do you care enough to confront the things that need to be changed in your life? Do you care enough? I say this knowing that right now I may be threatening you. <laughs> by the possibility of having to confront some stuff that's so painful. But let, follow me as I go through the steps that Nehemiah took in this process. Step one, we find Nehemiah confronting the problem. Interesting, the problem was pretty obvious on the surface. But the first thing that Nehemiah did was to point out that the situation they were in was not God's will. 
That's an important moment. To have, when you're really being buried underneath something and someone steps into your life and says, listen, let me give you a word from God. You, this is not God's will. This isn't where God wants you to be. And he does this by saying for them what was obvious. He said, we are in, according to the, the message translates, we are in bad shape. Conditions are appalling. <laughs> then NET adds, considerably adverse. In other words, it's kind of like when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, and he describes this situation. It says, conflicts without, fears within. Conflict on the outside, and we're terrified on the inside of what's going to happen. And so Paul basically says of his own situation, this is the trouble that I found myself in. Nehemiah says it as well. And essentially what he does is he has the courage to confront two problems that these Jews had become accustomed to accepting. Number one, the condition of the city. Jerusalem lies in ruins, burned with fire, heaps of rubble, he says in another place. And as I said before, instead of saying, let's clean this mess up, they just simply said, well, this is just the way it is. This is just the way it is. You ever hear that when people talk about other people? Or do you ever say that about yourself? We say to somebody, well, that's just the way they are. They'll never change. Nothing may ever be different. Or basically, you say it to other people. Well, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. This is just who I am. Those are lies. That's a statement that I'm going to accept the burned out rubble in my life. <laughs> I'm going to accept that. And God says, no, I am here to transform your life. I'm here to do great and exciting things if you will allow me to do so. The second condition that they had to confront was the condition of their own souls. In fact, he says to them that you will no longer be put to shame. They're living in a, in a condition of constant, unending shame. You know what shame is? It's, it's that feeling that if people knew this part of your life, they would reject you automatically. Most of us live running from some shameful thing in our lives so that we never can really be transparent or open or feel safe completely with other people because we believe in our mind, if they really knew me, they wouldn't like me. Something you may have done, something from your past, and you carry that with you, and what it does is it limits your ability to enter into meaningful relational attachments, which is, has its own serious downside we'll talk about in a moment. You see, Nehemiah essentially says, saying to them, God doesn't want you living like this. This is not acceptable. There are three things God promises to the people of God, you and I in particular. He promises to give us peace, He promises to give us joy, and He promises to give us love. Those are part of our heritage. Now, some of you are saying, doesn't He promise to make me rich, healthy, wealthy, and wise? Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> but He does promise, I will give you peace, he, I, do, I will give you joy, and I will give you life. But bottom line is, you cannot know the joy, nor can you know the power of His love without the peace of God. And that peace is ours by inheritance. When we ask Christ into our heart, Paul says, Romans 5, 1, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
There should be an abiding sense of peace in your heart, not based upon your performance, but based upon His performance. See, many people, we have peace with God, but not many Christians experience the peace of God on a regular basis because what we're always doing is evaluating ourselves based upon our last performance. How well did I do what I did? And the chances are really good that that last performance was not that good. And you have some high moments, you know, where, boy, that was really slick. You know, I mean, I've, I've come and give messages here and other places where I've walked in and it's just, uh, just uh, almost a subconscious flow of the Holy Spirit. It's really powerful. It's really amazing. And I've gone away and somebody said, how'd it go? I said, wow, man, I was just glad I got to be there. And there's other times where I felt like they needed to fumigate the room after I got done. You know, it was just, you know, 45 minutes of verbal flatulation. It was not a pleasant experience for everybody, right? And you just go away and say, I'm, I'm just going to bury my head and never show it in public ever again because I just made a, a raving fool out of myself. I'll never forget. Speaking of churches in Australia, the uh, guy who had spoke at this church the morning, uh, in the morning service had built me up. And so when I showed up, it was standing room only. I mean, people were literally standing along the walls to listen to me pontificate. And I had a headache when they came to pick me up. I just grabbed a couple of aspirin, threw them in my, drank some water. And as we're driving, I suddenly realized that even though the bottle said aspirin, I had forgotten that I had put some narcotics that I'd gotten for um, an asthmatic condition I'd had. Um, and I took, usually take one of them, and they, that really puts the buzz on. I had just ingested two of them, and I was beginning to uh, sing Purple Haze. <laughs> And I just, uh, and so I, the guy who's, who's driving me to this church, you know, he's visiting and stuff. And I said, I got to tell you something. What I've, and I explained to him what I just did. And I said, I'm actually getting stoned right now. He just kind of looked at me like, you Americans, you know. And uh, so we get to the church. He introduces me to the pastor. I explain it to the pastor. I said, you know, I did this and I, I'm, I'm really kind of stoned. If I start saying, babbling madly, would you just come and lead me off the podium? <laughs> because I, I probably won't know what I'm saying. And, and he just looked at me quizzically and that was it. And then we had the worship service before the message and I, I nodded out. I slept through most of it. Uh, and then, then they called me up and I woke up at that moment and I got up, they introduced me, I got behind the podium and I explained to the congregation what I had just done. I said, I, this is what happened and if I start rambling or whatever, you know that it's, it's not me, it's, it's the drugs. Uh, it's the last thing I remember. It isn't really the last thing. The last thing I remember was standing on the floor talking with the pastor I don't even remember coming off the podium, and I, I was standing there, I said, how was it? He said, that was fantastic. <laughs> so I've been doing that ever since. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those moments where you think, oh, but to this day, I just sit and think, what in the world did I say? I have total blackout. Scary, scary thought. Everybody has things in our lives that we wish we could black out. 
The longer you live, the more you're going to have things to regret. The more things that are going to be in your life saying, you know, if I'd been wiser, more mature, if I'd been more together, I'd been more, if I'd been mentally ill at that point in my life, because I mean, especially your teen years is a period of temporary insanity anyway. If, if, if I had just had it more together, I, I, I wouldn't have done this and I would have done that. And you can live in that land of regret forever and ever and ever. But what God says is, my peace is my gift to you, not based upon what you've done, but rather it's based upon what I've done. You are justified, you are declared righteous by my death on the cross, not by your death on anything. But it's really the reality of what I give to you. It's yours. You can have it all the time, but we keep on wanting to default back into performance. We want to go back to saying, but God, I believe in your grace, but I can't really know peace until I prove that I deserve to have peace. And all I can say to you is, good luck. You're not going to get there except momentarily. You'll have these great moments and, wow, that was really good and I feel really good. And then something bad happens or goes wrong. And that's the nature of the world we live in. The peace of God needs to be founded on the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross for you. That when he said it is finished, we embrace that more and more every day of our life that is finished. And how does God get us to embrace that? By allowing us to see that we don't deserve it. By letting us see things in ourselves that we know disqualify us from the, from the uh, Guinness Book of Perfection. We're no record holders except maybe in the negative sense. But it's important because Paul went on to say to the Philippians, he says, that peace transcends all understanding. Doesn't make sense. But it guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It sets up a guard in your mind that enables you to function effectively. Because as you feel that peace in your life, what comes is Later on, we'll see in Nehemiah 8, the joy of the Lord. And what comes from the joy of the Lord? Strength. But if you don't have peace with God, you can't have joy. We rejoice when our hearts are at peace. So what does the enemy do? He comes and tries to steal your peace so he can rob you of your joy and then leave you powerlessly and defense, defenseless against the enemy. And notice this, you know, uh, Brian, their kids are staying at our house before they move. And, you know, my little grandson, Cash, if you know him, is, a, is an effervescent fountain of joy. This kid has got more testosterone in him than should be legal. He is on, in, at full throttle. He's just happy. He's excited. He's that kid that jumps out of the bed too early and says, hey, here I am. <laughs> He's excited. You know, the, the son gets intimidated by him. He, and man, the more joy he has, the more power he has. And you've seen it in your life, haven't you? When your heart is just bubbling with joy, it's like, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. But when your joy is not there because you don't have his peace, sometimes lifting feathers can be beyond your strength because you just can't get moving. You have to confront this. And it, one of the things that Townsend said, I think is really good, he says, he described you and me this way, beautiful but damaged. And says, we hide from what we need frantically looking in the wrong place for the right thing. Many of us are afraid of exposing and repairing the broken parts of our souls. The reality is the first thing you and I need to do is confront those things that are causing shame and pain in our life. Not to just simply distract them, not just simply say, I think I'll just watch TV and zone out. 
or play a video game or go on and do some research or get in some activity. Some of us are busy all the time because that way we don't have to think about what causes pain and shame in our life. But you know what happens when you lay your head on the pillow? It will come to you. It'll wake you up in the middle of the night. And whatever wakes you in the middle of the night is on your heart and on your mind is the thing that's causing you pain and shame. And the answer isn't ambient. The answer is prayer. God is simply saying, you need to address this in your life and begin to confront it and confess it and let me be my healing grace. Psalm 139, search me, O God. Test me. Know my heart. That's a courageous prayer to pray. To ask God, to invite Him to do that kind of work inside of you. And He says, find if there is any offensive way in me, anything that offends you, God, any anxiety, fear that causes me to run scared and bring your healing touch into my life. Step two, you have to confront your unbelief. You see, the root of this malady is the belief that God is either unable or unwilling to fix us. And so we resign ourselves to hang on the best we can until life is over. But the writer of Hebrews described it this way. He said, it's an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. If we go back through Ezra and, Esther and, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and, and Haggai and Zechariah and these prophets that all circled around this moment in history, one of the things we discover is that they repeatedly were being discouraged by outside negative input into their life. It bred in them a kind of unbelief, and the upshot was they turned away from the living Lord. We'll see this in Nehemiah again. We see it in the book of Ezra. We see it back in the times of Haggai and Zechariah. This, this kind of unbelief that makes them give up on doing the thing that they know that God wants them to do. In Haggai chapter 1, they, they said, The people say the time has yet, not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. The Lord's response to them, Oh, so it's time for you to build your house while my house remains a ruin? In other words, it was a smaller dynamic of what Nehemiah was doing. The temple was a ruin, and God sent them there and said, the first priority is to fix the temple. And after they got started, it tells us that the elders began to grieve because it wasn't that impressive a building. They looked at the magnificent, they remembered the magnificent Solomon's temple, and this temple that they were building was really kind of a storage shed in comparison and so they, Zechariah told him, he said, who is this that despises the days of small things? In other words, who is it that despises the calling that God has given you? Because in your mind, it seems insignificant. This isn't important. This doesn't matter. Yet the reality is we are all so interconnected that when you throw a pebble in the pond, the ripple goes out. Everything that you and I say or do ripples out and touches the life of someone else, like it or not. There is no such thing as an insignificant moment in your life. Every moment of your life is of a measurable worth and value in the eyes of God. Even Nehemiah had to deal with it at one point in chapter 4 where it said that people started complaining, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. We have the advantage of being on the other side and seeing the completed wall. But he hadn't, you know, Nehemiah hadn't read past chapter 4 at that point. And here are these people just saying, we can't do it, it's too much. 
We just need to give in. We're, and it's that spirit of discouragement that settles into us and keeps us from going, going on. How does Nehemiah counter that? Well, he does three things that I think are significant. First of all, he gives his personal testimony. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. He comes to him and says, I know that you don't have faith, but let me tell you what God did in my heart. The message that he gave to me, the confidence he filled me with. God's gracious hand is upon me. You don't believe it's on you, let me tell you, it's on me. Well, that's the key of a real leader. He sees the grace of God on his or her life and, and, and moves in accordance to that grace. But the second thing he does is he gives them sound theology when he says, the God of heaven will give us success. Why will the God of heaven give us success? Because we're doing what he wants done. That's all. I know that God wants this city, this wall to be rebuilt. He said it before in the prophets, so I know that the same God who said, this is my will, now has given us this moment, let's subscribe, submit to what the Word of God says true, and let's do it. And thirdly, what he does is he redefines them by giving them a healthy identity. Their identity had become unhealthy. They saw themselves as a shameful group of people. They saw themselves as people who deserved to live in ruin and rubble and impoverishment, to be denigrated and to be ridiculed and mocked. You know, it's a funny thing because if you get belittled all the time, you become accustomed to being belittled. And what's scary is that if somebody compliments you, you don't trust them because you're just waiting for them to come around and set you up so they can belittle you again. Now, hopefully, you haven't had to live in that situation. But we always refer to being gun-shy. When I pull out my pellet gun, my, my simple little high-powered pellet gun, and I go hunting for crows so they won't eat my cherries, I'm not going to tell you my success rate, but you can count the notches on my belt. Anyway, <laughs> my dog... This 100-pound dog runs and hides like a sissy. And he's gun-shy. He's terrified of the sound of my pellet gun. What would he do if I took my AK out there? I mean, it's like... Anyway. But the whole thing is that we can get to that place where we're so afraid to step out because we've been hurt. Shot down, put down, undercut, backbit, slandered. I mean, those, these things happen in life. And everything in you says, don't do this anymore. Don't put yourself out there. And God says, walk in my peace. Why? You are my servants. That's what he says. We are his servants. Nine times in the Old Testament, he says to him, you are my treasured possession. And my question for you, friends, is who do you see yourselves as being right now? Do you see yourself as a child of God? 
a child of the king? Do you see yourself as being his dearly beloved, his treasured possession? Do you see yourself as a royal priesthood? Do you see yourself as somebody who's uniquely created and gifted by God to accomplish something that only you are gifted and capable of accomplishing for God? That has a special place that if you were gone, your absence in the work of God would be felt many other places because you aren't there? Or are you somebody who falls on the other side and says, well, I'm just some insignificant boob who doesn't really do anything and just kind of get in the way and I usually try stuff and I get it wrong and I'm such a mess up and all I'm saying is you're just repeating what you heard growing up. Just repeating what you heard growing up. You're not someone who is listening to the Spirit of God and the voice of God and again, you have to be willing to confront these things and begin to believe what's true about you, what God says is true about you. Here's a tricky thing. I know Christians who read the Bible and have such a powerful filter of negativism, all they can see is the negative passages. They even interpret them. I've sat in teachings where pastors have gone through the Word and all they do is highlight all the bad stuff that you and I are guilty of. Listen, let me tell you, guilt is so easy to sell. It is the gift that keeps on giving. But when you get to a place where you can start seeing the heart of God's love for you, your value, your immeasurable worth in His eyes, that's a change moment in your life. And you begin to operate more in a whole different sense. Which brings me to the third thing. You have to confront the destroyers. Destroyers is not my term. Erwin Lutzer is the one who first tipped me off to this dynamic. And since then, I've discovered that's actually a, a clinical name for it. It's called antisocial, disor- antisocial behavior disorder, better known to most of us as people who are narcissistic sociopaths. And it's interesting because in this story, we have a guy by the name of Sanballat, Nehemiah is the main character mentioned most often in the book, but ten times, second to Nehemiah, is Sanballat. And this is the guy who is totally narcissistic sociopath. And what narcissistic sociopaths do is they like to use fog to control you. What I mean by fog? Well, it's an acronym. It's uh, fear, obligation, and guilt. Listen to how he used this on Nehemiah. First, he says, he uses fear. In, in, in chapter 4, verses 1, and again in 7, it says, he was very angry. He was greatly incensed. You know what the word incensed means? It comes from the word incense. It means to be on fire, smoldering with heat. He's literally blazing. He's raging in anger. And Nehemiah goes on in chapter 6 saying, he is scheming to harm me, and he's trying to frighten me. So the first thing that these kind of people do is they try to terrify you to not doing or doing what they want. They threaten you with all sorts of harm and hurt. And basically, why do they do this? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But secondly, they, might, they hit you with obligation. And this is kind of emotional blackmail. In fact, we find it in chapter 6, verse 6, where he, Sanballat sends this letter to Nehemiah and says, it is reported that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. You are about to become their king. Now this report will get back to the king. So come let us confer together. And he said, goes on to say, he actually sent somebody to prophesy against him. You're outside of God's will. And he knew the whole reason he wanted to come out and meet him was so that he could kill him. 
But what was he doing? Trying to intimidate him and make him feel obligated to come under his authority. And then there's thirdly, the tool of guilt. It says he ridiculed the Jews. In chapter 6, he was trying to intimidate me. Chapter 2, he says, they mocked and they ridiculed us. They used verbal abuse to beat people down. And I guarantee you, Nehemiah wasn't the first who became subject to these techniques, but he was just the most important one. You see, what this is really, and I actually, when we get into chapter 6, I want to explore this whole dynamic fuller because it's uh, too big a topic to cover in just this short session. But it's satanic. It's a non-redemptive relationship that has the effect of pushing us away from God and from God's best for our lives. Why would anybody do that? In fact, it says that Sanblat got angry when he heard that Nehemiah had come, and he says that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Why would somebody get upset because somebody comes along to help somebody else out? And the answer is because he knew it would break his control over those same people. You see, these kind of people, they don't view family as family. They don't view their friends as friends. Rather, friends and family and acquaintances are all the same. They're tools to be used for their own personal happiness. They don't bond. They bring people into bondage by fear and guilt and obligation. They bring your life into a fog. Somebody put it really well once. They said, when you are involved with these kind of people, they make you feel like you're taking crazy pills because you feel like you're going insane. It's, it's, I, it's all my fault. Everything's their fault. I don't know how many marriages that I've counseled where one or the other partner has convinced the other that everything that's wrong in their life is their personal responsibility, and yet they never, no matter what they do, they can never get out of the hole. They can never get it right. They can never recover. And almost always they're married to somebody who's a narcissist. You may work for somebody who's a narcissist, make stupid mistakes, and then says it's your fault. It goes on and on and on. But here's what makes this all so tough. You, God created you and I for relationships. In other words, being in connection with other people in a, in a bonding and attaching way is necessary for your survival. Jesus essentially said, no branch can bear fruit of itself. He said, if you're cut off from the, from the vine, you'll wither and die. And many people are withering and dying relationship, relationally because they feel cut off in any vital way from other people. And oftentimes, they do it for self-protective reasons. When you've been deeply hurt by other people, you begin to create walls and barriers and separations to keep them at a great distance from you and at a very high cost because from that point on, you begin to close out everyone else as well. I love how Nehemiah dealt with it. His immediate response, and this follows several times as we go through the book, he goes, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or hysterical right to it. It's almost like what I do sometimes in my prayer life. I just simply say, Satan, you have no right in this place. You have no authority here. You have no right to touch this person's life or to create these problems. I command you in the name of Jesus, get out of here because you have no place here. 
Because he has no right. And yet many times we as Christians can live under this depth of spiritual oppression because we feel like Satan has the right to speak negative, ugly, lying things. You know one of the values of knowing the Word of God? When you hear something in your brain that isn't Bible, that's not coming from God. That's coming from the demons of hell. And you need to tell those demons, get out of here, go away. You have no right to speak into my life. We need to be connected with people, but the sad thing is that not all connections are healthy. Not all are redemptive. Not all connections are safe. Not all connections are life-giving. And that's the difficult thing. One of the things that throws us off when you're dealing with a narcissist, narcissists are very charming and a narcissist will never tell you what's wrong with you initially. They'll make you feel wonderful about yourself. Oh, darling, I'm so glad to see you. I just love you. Oh, how you doing? La, 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 la. And you think, oh, this is the nicest person in the world. They love me beyond anybody I've ever met. Until you don't serve their purposes. And when you say no to them, hell hath known no fury. The point is, if you're going to move forward in your life, we have to learn to connect with those who are life-giving. People like Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a life-giving source. And disconnect from those who are life-draining. Sanballat was life-draining. And as we go through the story, we find that many of the key leaders in Jerusalem were deeply connected to Sanballat. And they became the source of constant deterioration in the relationship. Notice the effect of Nehemiah when he tells them the grace of God that's upon him. When he declares, we are God's servant doing God's will. This is what God wants. Their response is, let us start rebuilding. And so they began the good work. It's really important, I think, for us to understand that we were created on purpose for a purpose. You were created by God on purpose for a purpose. And we talked about last week, really seeking God to discover what is that purpose for which you created me. And I tell you, the closer you get to identifying it, the more opposition you will find in your life. And sadly, sometimes it'll come through other people. Sometimes it'll come through other Christians. Because narcissistic personalities aren't limited just to the unsaved, unfortunately. That would be so easy. We're all a bit narcissistic to some degree. But some people have a narcissistic personality disorder. Nehemiah understood that if the work was going to get done, it was going to be done, as he says, who would be doing the good work? Who was going to do the good work? These leaders. They needed to be built up. They needed to be encouraged. But they needed to confront the things that were keeping them from moving forward. They needed to be honest about what we, the problem here is. We're accepting what is not God's will. And my question to you is, are you accepting things in your life that aren't God's will? Well, I just can't change. That's just the way it is. Well, this marriage will never get any better. My kids will never serve God. You know, my parents will never be nice people. You know, you go through your own list. But if you're accepting that and saying, okay, this is just the way it is, then you're giving up on, the, on, on what God can do. 
Because God says you need to ask, you need to seek, you need to knock. And you need to, secondly, you need to be willing to confront areas of unbelief that support that, things that you don't believe that God is that strong in your life. You need to get, get anchored in His truth and not in your emotions. And lastly, you need to be honest and confront the relationships in your life. Are, do you have non-redemptive relationships? We all have relationships. But are those relations redeeming my walk with God? Are they causing me to go forward or are they getting in the way? Because it sounds so cruel, but the reality is, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? How can you move forward when somebody is wanting you to stay where you're at or actually pull you back? God wants you to flourish. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be independent. He wants you to experience everything that He has for you. But we have to be willing to confront stuff that might be otherwise painful. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to hear and process these things in a way that will let us move forward. Lord, we don't want to be a contentious people. I think about how you spoke to me years ago about a situation. You said you can't have a tug of war if you don't pick up the other end of the rope. Lord, don't let us be people who are dragging the Sanballats and the Tobias and the Geshems around and fighting with them and wrestling with them, Lord. Just give us the grace to realize, you know, I don't need this in my life. And that we might simply choose to instead to invest ourselves in relationships that are redemptive. There are many of us in this room, I suspect, Lord, who are afraid of that kind of closeness. We're afraid of becoming attached for fear of the pain that comes when we love other people closely and dearly. Lord, we need this in our life. You created us for, for connection. And I pray, Father, that we would be able to trust you with that. Grant us that grace, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.